I've always said 100% of, of nothing is worth nothing, but 60% of something really substantial is, is a load. And it has really helped attract good people. It's retained good people as well. But most importantly, I think it's allowed people to think as an owner. And so when they, when they think about something, they don't think about it selfishly. They think, what's the right thing to do for the company? What's the right thing to do for everybody here? Because we're all in this as a team. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. And today I'm talking to and learning from Simon LaFosse. Simon started a recruitment company some years ago and he tells the founding story where he used to be at a business that was successful and floated. But unfortunately, the directors there deemed his contribution not to be worthy of many stock options. And so in founding LaFosse, he came up with a unique way to reward long service and loyalty in his team. We talk about his plans for the future and a potential float of the business. I ask him what happened last year with recruitment. And and from their perspective, even in the tech sector, which where they're a specialist, they lost half of their revenue. And we talk about some of the things that make his business unique. They have been a fixture on the Sunday Times best companies list of great places to work in the UK for many years. And that's really at the core of their recruitment strategy if people know them to be the best recruitment company in the uk to work for they'll they'll have a queue at their door of people looking to join them so we talk a bit about that we get into why simon stepped away from being the ceo and is now sort of executive chairman what comes across to me is is how humble simon is he talks towards the end of our conversation about how he's not really a leader and maybe the thing he learned too late is the shadow that he casts and some great book recommendations fantastic conversation with simon i enjoyed it i'm sure you will too uh so simon lafosse i uh, started a company called lafosse associates coming up 15 years ago started in uh not in our bedroom actually i was just about to lie um we started in a little study downstairs in west sussex and we've grown quite a lot since then we've grown on average about 30 percent per annum and i am now I call myself executive chairman and I have a non-executive chairman who's actually the real chairman, I call him the real chairman. But So I've tried to find find a role for myself, really, that isn't being CEO. And I've done that with, with varying degrees of success. So that's kind of a, a real whistle-stop tour, but that's me in a nutshell, I guess. You're a recruitment firm, but you're atypical in some respects. I think so. So the idea was from the start that – 
We're atypical in two regards, actually. One very recently, and, and the second was how we set out to be different, actually. And the, how we set out to be different was most, most recruitment organizations have a bit of a filthy reputation when it comes to looking after people, be it their own people or candidates, especially candidates that they can't immediately place. And that just seemed to make no sense to me in terms of if you know company success is largely determined by your reputation, then why would you not treat people a little bit better and have people positively talking about you as opposed to negatively? And, and apart from anything else, I just enjoyed working that way and found it a little bit more rewarding. So that was that was the ethos behind setting up the company. I, I personally found it a really effective way to build my own individual brand within another company. It was just treating people well. It, it sounds horribly simple. And as I say, embarrassing, really, that I was part of an industry that hadn't kind of clocked that. And and so I just started it with that with that simple ethos that we, you know we would be passionate about treating people well and and we'd see what happened as a consequence. And the joy of it is, I don't think our industry is growing much, maybe one or two percentage points a year, but we've grown on average by thirty percent per annum. And so as the company grows up, you just realise that that is everything. Actually, you've got to assume competence in terms of what you're doing. But that act of treating people well is is the differentiator that I think has really helped us continue our growth all, all the way along. And then you've got some third party external validation for that. I I know in a number of blog posts I've I've referenced you as a company in in an industry where you know you've been the are you the best recruitment company to work for in the UK for a number of years. We've always been since we went into it. We've been in the top. 40 uh, best companies to work for in the UK. And and we're kind of there or thereabouts most years in terms of the best recruitment company. There's about 900 companies that go into it and clearly all of them think they're a good place to work or they wouldn't be signing themselves up for it. And we use that as our as a kind of external benchmark as to how well we're delivering because otherwise you're, you're just drinking from the Kool-Aid, right? So that is a really powerful one. There's a bunch of other awards we've won, but that for me is the really intelligent one because everybody's asked to contribute to the survey. The survey asks about 100 questions, and it's a really smart piece of work. It does give you an external benchmark, but more importantly, it gives you a sense of where you are doing well in terms of engagement with your staff and where you're not doing so well uh, relative to the year before. So, yes, it's an outstanding thing for us, and it's helped keep us honest, I think. Very good. And you've got some stock ownership for the employees? Yeah, so so it's very difficult, isn't it? Because your how you behave as you get a little bit older in life is necessarily determined significantly by how how you've been treated or your earlier experiences. And I was lucky enough to work for a very high growth company that then floated, and I was one of the people early in there. And one of the underneath the four founding directors, I was I sat on their kind of executive committee, and I've worked there for fourteen years. So I felt I contributed considerably to the value that had been created in the firm, which is about 250 million. And and I was thrown what in my view was was uh, you know a few peanuts along the way. I mean apart from missing out on the cash, which I did, more importantly I'd like to think was was how I just felt a little bit betrayed by that. I knew that I'd I'd contributed considerably more to that, despite the fact I hadn't taken any risk risk with my own capital, all of those things. And others, as you can imagine, that have been there a long time and contributed in a really significant way. It just changed the whole ethos of the company and that, and it just almost broke up the company actually and, and definitely made it more difficult for it to be successful. So for me, 
it was just it seemed like a simple idea you know i've always said 100% of of nothing is worth nothing but 60% of something really substantial is is a load and in a people business it is just the people that create it i haven't invented a widget that is just flying out the door all i wanted was a majority control so i said 60% i'll hang on to but over time i will gift 40% away and, and we're very much on that journey. I think we've given away about 35%, and there's another 5% of dried powder there left to go. And, and it has really helped attract good people. It's retained uh, good people as well. But most importantly, I think, it's allowed people to think as an owner. And so when they, when they think about something, they don't think about it selfishly. They think, what's the right thing to do for the company? What's the right thing to do for everybody here? Because we're all in this as a team. We actually, you know, we kind of are. We own 40% of the company. Yeah, I'll tell you the funny thing was, because when you're starting a business, as, as you remember, you've, I, I was scared shitless, actually, and wondering whether I made the worst mistake in my life. You know, three young kids, one great mortgage. And I was in my 40s thinking, what the hell am I doing? This is just a midlife crisis. And, and um you rely heavily on advisors who necessarily should have the answers, right? And I remember speaking to an accountant and lawyers as I was setting up the company. And they said, so what are you going to do with the equity? And I said, oh, I want to give away 40%. They said, Simon, that's a lovely idea. That's really, really sweet of you. But nobody does that. It doesn't, you know, then that's where the value in the company is. I said, no, no, I'm aware of that. And that's kind of why I'm doing it. And it was to a, to a person, they just said, we really advise you against doing it. So every now and again, uh, you've just got to, stick with what you feel is right. I had no data to support it. Is there some liquidity in the shares that the employees or the equity the employees own? Or are you on it for some sort of journey together forever? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. And that has caused consternation because if they leave, they leave the equity behind. You know, I've seen startups where you have these vesting cliffs and then people walk out the door with 2%, 3%, whatever, and they're not adding any value to the future growth of the company. So I said the only way at which it'll be able to be realized is when there's a total event, so when we either sell the company or we float the company. And I've just been quite clear about that. But it, but it has caused people along the way to question it. So, so if I left tomorrow and I've been here for 10 years, I won't get anything. I said, no, that's right, you know, because the journey hasn't finished. The sad thing with that was that it then made me feel that in order to realize it for, for other people as well as myself, I had to sell the company. So we had to kind of stop the journey because, you know, no matter who you sell to, it's it's really that journey is over isn't it but i think we found a way now which does allow people to realize it and allows the journey to continue even if i'm not nearly as involved as i was and that's very simple it's floating the business and i always thought that people wouldn't find that so attractive because there's a bit more due diligence that has to go into the company and fiduciary responsibility and managing your share price and all of those things but when i discussed it with the leadership team and the management team they're just to a person are massively enthusiastic about it. So we've got to get ourselves in the shape to be able to do that. And it'll be aim rather than main market. But we'll come to market as soon as we can, really. And I, and I think it'll be bounded not so much by a date, but, but more evaluation. So I think the received wisdom tends to be if you're worth less than 100 million, you're going to get a little bit forgotten on aim. And so I think when, we're, when we feel we're close to that value, we'll float the business. And it does feel that it's given everybody in the business a real shot in the arm, actually, because it, it you know, to your point, it, that does start to feel real now. And of course, ironically, they won't be able to cash in their chips from day one, and neither should they want to if they believe in the company. <laughs> we should be doubling the value of the company every three years. So 
I don't know what, what savings uh, account they've got at the moment, but it probably won't be yielding that, that those kind of results. So it won't be 100% on the market. Then nobody would buy it if it was. I get to decide what that will be. I mean, it's very early days, but I like I like the idea. What sort of time did you have during COVID last year? Did it go to zero, or was it was it a bit better than that? It was horrible. It was really horrible. It fell off a cliff. Permanent revenues dropped by fifty percent, and we lost a load of contractors. Lost about a third of our contractors over not overnight, but close to overnight. And we had no idea where it was going to come back. So we furloughed quite a lot of people, and then. When the, when the government was bringing that, to, to, making noises about it going towards the end, and, and we'd found a little bit of activity returning, but it was still very, very low. And, and we just let a number of people go, which was tragic, really. There were people that were less experienced. They were good people. So there was nothing good about that at all, other than we felt we needed to do it to survive. And at that point, there was there had been no vaccine, so there was there was nothing on the horizon really that suggested volumes were going to increase anytime soon. In a completely serendipitous move, you had just moved new office into new office space, hadn't you? Yeah, it was, tra- <laughs> <laughs> it was absolutely tra- tragic. So we've been bootstrapping ourselves for. You've been sitting cheek by jowl in yeah. like cramming an extra yeah. couple of people in the toilets for the last two years, haven't you? No, exactly. And we've always had cheap offices and not that well decorated because we saw ourselves as this high grade bootstrap company. And for the first time, I said, no, we really deserve something better. Despite having stepped away from the business a little bit, I thought, I really want this to be a fantastic space for everybody. So I'm going to personally get involved, project manage it, get great furniture, get great build out, loads of space. And it was 50% bigger than the old office. We spent a million and a half pounds ripping out the old furniture from the place we were moving to and putting in new, put in five new kitchens, and we were due to move out. In fact, we were due to go skiing as a company on Wednesday, I think, come back on the Saturday and then move into the new offices on the Monday. And it was literally then that they said, uh, no, 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 that's it. And the government said, you've all got to work remotely. So the ski holiday never happened, which was, I guess, looking back, it was never going to happen. But we never got to move in. We never got to move in. We still haven't. You know, We had last year when people came back, not everybody came back in, as you can imagine. And it's just, it was tragic, really. I had it literally gleaming, ready to go, just putting the final polishes to it. And then and, and then it never got used. And of course, then I called I called the landlord and said, do you think you could um, let us off some of the money? And of course, they said, no, no don't be so stupid. Have a look at your contract. <laughs> we'll have the money as per usual. I said, oh, okay, fine. Um, so yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it was a funny old situation, really. How did you cope? How did you cope going remote? It was so easy. It, on you know, as I say, on on one level, it was so easy. We just we were in the cloud, and so one day we couldn't be in the office. The next day we were at home working from our laptops, and Zoom appeared pretty rapidly. Somewhat ironically, in some respects, it actually speeded up the process because arranging face-to-face interviews takes a lot longer than asking a client and a candidate to hop on a Zoom call. As I say, for the first three or four months, volumes dropped off a cliff anyway, because nobody was even thinking about hiring until they worked out what state their business was in. And when they worked out that some of the the hiring was still going to go on, they got used to using Zoom. It was actually quite an easy process. Although, again, it was still difficult for people to get their heads around the idea of accepting a job without properly meeting anybody and, and seeing the company's premises. But 
it kind of people get used to stuff so quickly. I mean, that's a ridiculous idea, isn't it? You can accept a job with another company without ever meeting anyone there. One of my stories from when I was at Pier One is there was we were all sitting around one day, you know, and some chap turned up in reception in a suit. And the receptionist said, who are you? And he said, well, I work here. I'm, I, today's my new day. I start today. And she's like, I know nothing about you. Just sit there. She came back and it's like, there's a bloke in reception says he works here in a suit. We're like, well, he can't have interviewed anybody here because he would know not to come in in a suit. And we went around. Does anyone, nobody knew. Turned out our colleagues in the US had interviewed him over the phone, not thinking that having anyone meet him would be a good idea. So poor bloke, he, he was in the wrong location dressed in, inappropriately, but we had hired him. <laughs> so so we changed we changed that after that. Uh, but Nick Marks, who we do some work with from Friday Pulse, his view is that those people who did get hired and did accept jobs and haven't met their colleagues and have never been into their office are less sticky and are more prone to churn. Is that is that something that you've seen or is that just... I, I, haven't, I haven't seen it, but I think that's got to be without a shadow of a doubt correct. They've got to be less sticky. I think what we found is people are becoming less sticky to the company the longer they spend away from it, as you kind of expect, um, because their experience of the company is not this place with this great culture and wonderful people and people looking after them, caring for them. It's their bedroom. And in some situations, in a really tough flat share, and it's pretty it's pretty miserable for them, you know, no outside space. We were talking before we were recording, you, you were saying that you felt as though there's been this sort of slow glide down that, you know, once you'd got over the euphoria that the tech worked and you were, st- and you were still in business, that it reduced your point of difference. You know, like if you're a business that normally comes together and, you know, great people doing great work and it's a great culture, and now all of a sudden everybody's doing the same work in their bedroom, it narrows the difference between you and the rest of the market. Absolutely, and I think it, it really has. It really has done that. Not just in terms of that. You know, we've got a lot of young people who are learning a lot. They're at an early stage in their career, and it's much more difficult to learn if you're stuck on. A, you know, you're stuck in your bedroom. You're just not picking up a lot of the ways you'd be learning. There's still formal development stuff, but it's that the, the kind of moment by moment hearing somebody else on a call or having just having a chat with somebody and so that wasn't that wasn't going on at all in the, in the same way so i think definitely this kind of slow glide down in terms of in, engagement with the company yeah very difficult and and of course one of the most difficult things about this is that the, a lot of the senior management are living out of london typically with big gardens with families with you know different stuff going on a completely different experience so you know, be honest. My lockdown was was not bad at all. I, I'm lucky living in a in a wonderful house. You know, I, I can have all the space in, in in the world. I can go out and walk in the woods, as opposed to somebody, as they say, in a student flat share with a bunch of people they don't necessarily get on with, uh, and the and and they go to bed and they get up in the morning and that's their workplace, their bedroom. Yeah, you know, and that has that has got to send you a bit mad, doesn't it? Really, it's very easy to, not to be able to understand what other people's lockdown experience is because for the senior people i think it's by definition generally been a lot easier so what changes once uh freedom day rolls around at la fosse are you back in the office are you three days a week five days a week what are you thinking i've stayed out of it actually 
because I just don't think I'm in touch w- with the dynamic enough. So I've just said to the senior management team, you guys work out how to do it. And that the conclusion they've come to is, <laughs> uh, which is not the conclusion I would have come to. But they know that. They know that this isn't going to be a surprise to them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I would have said Mondays and Fridays in, and they would they said no, Tuesdays and Thursdays, and a third day to your choosing. And again, I would have said, well, let's make that a set day so everybody benefits from everybody else being in. But there's a variety of reasons that, that, that they don't feel that's a good idea. So I've, I've managed to keep my beak out of that, which is definitely a good thing. And, we, and it's under review. But, but yeah, once we are allowed back in, it'll be three days a week in and, and two, two days a week from home to start off with. And then we'll just see how it goes. And I think there are some people who can work from home the whole time, actually. They're not in managerial roles. I think you need to be in the office for that. And they're quite senior people. So they're generally people who are doing their own thing, very senior consultants. So they they haven't they don't have anything to learn to be able to do their job. They have all of that. They're well motivated. They're probably in their thirties. That's a higher quality of life for them. They'll come in a bit, but they don't they don't need to be in. The more junior people need to be in because they need to learn. And the managers need to be in because they need to manage. Eighty five percent of our workforce need to be in those three days a week, I think. And we'll see how it goes after that. You know, I think until you see it working. And I know I've been astounded by how well it has worked, despite this kind of slow glide down. I think just to see us be able to set up remotely and a business still pretty much carry on is 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 interesting. So we'll see. It's just a big old experiment, isn't it, Don? It, it is. And, and how many people have you hired that you've never met? Or because it went off a cliff, are you, did you hang on to more people? And We, we lost uh, a fair few people when volumes had just dropped massively. Volumes have returned now. We actually hired 26 people last month, 20 of whom were, were have no experience in recruitment. So they've come on as one cohort. So, so that has been a really interesting exercise for us to ha- how to onboard those people and, and bed them in with all the restrictions we've got in place at the moment. So we're just, we're just learning how to do that, really. We're learning how to do that in real time is the honest assessment of that. And as I say, it's had a bit of a a step back because we've all had this kind of warning shot fired across our bowels with one person just testing positive. So, Yeah. If sort of recruitment firms are the barometer of the economy, where's your, where do you see, where do you see the economy at? Yeah, that's difficult to tell because I think we're a little bit disconnected from that because we just recruit tech people and, and there's always been a, since I've been working in recruitment, which is too long to remember, there's always been a tech shortage. So I think we've always had a, you know, demand exceeding supply issue there's a definitely a bounce that we're seeing now. I think the rest of this year is going to be quite good. 22 is going to be interesting. And it wouldn't surprise me if I think things got a lot more subdued there as everybody worked out just how much COVID has, has affected them. And, and uh, But look, it'll be, it'll be fascinating, won't it? It's a, a massive economic experiment going on, that, the like that has never happened before, which is this massive stimulus. If that works without a recession, then we probably reinvented economics would be my very simple <laughs> And the last time they said that was just before the dot-com bubble burst. Yeah, <laughs> you're so right. But it's interesting because I, you know, when I speak to clients of ours, I would say all of them are recruiting and all of them have open roles and some of them are really struggling to fill roles with people that are good enough to be hired. Is there an exacerbation like a Brexit and COVID meant there's fewer people than normal in the market? 
Yeah, I think I think there is actually. I think people are reluctant. They feel, and you see this in a recession actually, where people are reluctant to move because there's this first in, first out, and just a general sense of paranoia. So it's like I've got a job, I might as well keep it. I don't want to risk anything else. And I think there's you know there's the practicality of as we talked about the interviewing and all the rest. But I think there's just that I, I know where I am right now. There's too much uncertainty elsewhere in, in my life and in the world right now for me to add another variable in there. I think we'll, we'll see movement for two reasons. One, one because the natural movement hasn't been allowed to happen, so you've kind of got that dam thing building up. And then secondly, companies that have not treated people as well as they could have done when they've been working remotely, I think that they'll get their comeuppance. And, and so I think ho- however it happens, I think that when and if we see a kind of large scale, albeit three days a week or whatever it is, return to the office in the second half of this year, I suspect there'll be a lot of movement. Maybe a flight to quality, as you say, those people who feel like they've been unfairly treated. Yeah, I I hope so. That would be nice, wouldn't it? There'd be some real poetic justice in that, actually. (laughs) I think of the commute really as as culture tax. If you think you've got a job... And if I don't have to travel for 30 minutes or 45 minutes or an hour to do my job, well, that makes my job slightly less average or crap than it would otherwise be. Where people go, it's amazing, you know, going and spending time with great people and doing interesting things or learning to totally different. You know, if you haven't built a business with a compelling culture, I think life could get hard. Uh, I think you're right. I mean, there is this interesting idea, isn't there, which is you know, maybe we share that time, the, the commute time. I work a little bit more for you and I have a bit more free time. And if, you know, even, even if actually I just worked just as hard as I did before, but I got more free time, it, you've got to call that a quality of life uh, upgrade, haven't you, really? Yeah. What's interesting is it doesn't seem to have turned out like that. Like Microsoft early-ish on reduced, produced a report and there's been a couple of other big studies and it looks as though people are just logging on early and logging off late and doing email with their what was their commute time, which is awful. I mean, because I'm not sure that getting the train is worse than doing sitting just doing email. But, you know, it's like Parkinson's law. People have just taken the work and spread it out. Yes, I think you're right. And it's interesting, isn't it, whether the productivity has actually gone up or it's just been done in a different kind of way. It wouldn't surprise me at all if productivity has gone up, actually, because there's just less to do. You're not, you're not going out socializing in the evening. So you're filling that space. You know, it's difficult to go and do something that involves other people. So I'm either going to carry on working or I'm going to be making my supper. <laughs> you know, so yeah. I've definitely spoken to people at Lafosse over the last few months who ha- have been working too hard because there hasn't been those, those moments of change, natural change in the working day that signal the end of it. And as a consequence, they're just, you can see they're stressed, they're tired for the simple reason they're working too hard. And, and I don't want them to be doing that. They don't want to be doing it, but they've fallen into that pattern. Yeah. What is it that you know now, and it might be a work thing or not, but what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? The really big one for me is this idea of a management shadow. And, and so the impact that I have that I don't realize I have, and I still don't think I'm fully cognizant of it. So I've always thought about myself as not really as much of a leader, certainly not that kind of dominant leader, but I'm in a leadership role and I have been since I started the company. And as a, the consequence of that is you've cast a shadow that I'm not really aware of, but I'm increasingly being told it is, is there. And you can see it sometimes, you know, when you say something and somebody just goes quiet on you and it's like, why aren't you going to come back with a robust defense of my rather stupid idea? You know, I'm just throwing something out there flippantly. And I think if I'd understood that better, I, I would have been a more sensitive 
manager and leader, I think, as I've developed into that role. And I kind of get it now, but it still doesn't feel natural to me because I've never really thought of myself as a leader of people. So I've never really thought that people are listening much anyway. (laughs) How do you manage to balance that with founding and running a successful business that you never thought of yourself as a leader? I guess I'm using a very narrow definition of leadership, which is that kind of, you know, off we go, everybody behind me, you know, charismatic, all the answers, that, that kind of hackneyed historical sense of what, what a leader is. Some people are natural leaders. Some people feel they're natural leaders. I, I was, you know, neither of those things. But I think what it has taught me is you don't need any of those traditional, or those overt kind of leadership qualities that we all spend too much time thinking about, you know, that ability to stand up in front of an audience and, or, or that actually people people will follow you because they respect you or they'll follow you because because you said you set a good example as opposed to anything that's a classic kind of leadership trait if that makes sense i've tried to set a good example i've just been me uh, and i've tried to treat people well and um that seems to be enough you know i'm sure there's much better ways to do it but that is probably partially why i'm not the ceo anymore you know i'm perhaps just stepping into the shadows a little bit to say look i'm still involved with this i want to help where i can but, you know, as we head on for two, three, four hundred people, then maybe it does take a different, it certainly takes a different level of commitment. And I feel, you know, I'm in my late 50s now and, and, and I think it takes more energy. I feel comfortable giving now. So, so that feels right as well to be stepping back, not stepping away, but just definitely stepping back a little bit. Very good. What books have you read along the way or sources of inspiration have you found that? you think other people should pick up well I, I just love i love reading business books actually because i think you, there's so much value in them and it's a time to reflect it's a quiet time where we talk about slow slow time and fast time in our business and most of it is fast time we don't make enough slow time i don't think you ever do uh, reading a business book is definitely slow time you get you get to think about things and and uh, absorb different information but also an op- opportunity to think about that in your sphere so I, I, i've always been interested in reading and I've, and I've done a lot of it over the time the first book i ever read and this is an important one for me i don't think it's particularly helpful nowadays but for me it set me off on that whole pattern of actually i can learn a lot through reading a, a book and it was You'll remember it because it was a kind of classic of its time. It was before, really, there was this whole thing about business books, which was um, Mark McCormack, what they didn't teach you at Harvard Business School. I just thought he's a fascinating man, very driven, very precise, uh, with a lot of really good habits. And it was an interesting and funny read as well. And he'd been massively successful. So I I remember absorbing that, and and that set off this idea that actually this is probably quite a good way to learn alongside the kind of doing thing. But that is an ancient text now that would probably probably not even politically correct actually but at the time I, I remember being very very imp- impressed by it and and really and not agreeing with everything actually and not agreeing with everything that he said but definitely provoked by it and 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 it, and it made me a bit more thoughtful about what I what, what I was doing I also didn't go to university and I had a chip on my shoulders for about the first 20 years so the title <laughs> just appealed as well right the best university in the world, and this is what they didn't teach you there. Oh, very good. Any others that you've read along the way? or I love Simon Sinek's stuff. I think he, he's re- really powerful. I think 
Gladwell, I love Malcolm Gladwell's stuff as much because he makes it interesting and he just writes well as all the various points he's, he's made. And that, for me, has been very important. I think the moment something becomes a little bit too dry, I just disconnect with it. So there's got to be a bit of a, a story. I'll tell you one particular one. Vernon Hill actually wrote a great book. It annoys a lot of people, but I, I love it. And, and so he was the guy that set up Metro Bank, sold it for a few billion, I think, and then came over and did the same thing in the UK. UK didn't go quite so well. But he just not obsesses about customers, but there was this I had this lovely idea of basically empowering his workforce to do the right thing for the customer so that there wasn't actually a rule book of if the client says this or the customer says this, you do that. It's just like if the customer wants you to do something that's going to be helpful, just do it, right? And, and he has a great example of, of somebody who came in to change some currency, left his uh, passport on the, on the desk in the bank. And the guy knew which airport he was going to because he had a bit of a chat with him about it. And he literally went to the airport, found him, and gave him his passport before he even knew he lost it. And he said, the brilliant, he said, that, he said I wasn't proud about that particular. What I was really proud about was he didn't feel he had to ask anybody to do that. The culture was such that, that was, he knew that was the right thing to go and do. So he just took his initiative and, and did it. So um, I, I love, I, and, and I've, I've listened to him talk. He, he came and talked in a, in a small room, actually, and a very big physical presence. And, and I just found him funny. He was telling us how rubbish the Brits are at tech and <laughs> and, and, and how rubbish other banks are. It's like, because I went into one of your banks and and you got his pen and it's got a kind of rope chain on it. He goes, what? And it was so funny. He made such a valuable point because what are you, you're basically saying your customers are thieves. That's what you're saying to the, to the people. <laughs> That we don't trust you to even, you know, not steal our pens. He, and, and he just said, it's such a simple example. He just said, I make pens and we print the name of our business on the side of it. We call it marketing. And, and <laughs> steal as many as you like. Yeah, they cost about 1p each. Please help yourself do them. And he just came out with so many like this. So it's just funny. It was engaging. It was idiosyncratic, completely undiplomatic. It just went on. It just went on and on. So, yeah. So, for me, it's smart learning that is also fun and interesting. Very good. Very good. Thank you very much indeed. Simon, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today. It's been lovely talking to you, Dom. Thank you for inviting me on. And um, I hope I get to see you in the flesh soon as well. I'll, I look forward to coming to visit you in your new office when you uh, open back up. <laughs> <laughs> that would be good. I'll be delighted to show you around. <laughs> it's brilliant. Speak to you soon. All right. You take care. Cheers. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week. <laughs>